Welcome to Waywards, where we take a few sidelong looks at literature to wonder where we ought to go. I'm Steve Chisnell, and here is a Waywards mini episode. Now, sometime in the 1980s, I enrolled in a mythology class with Professor Sheila Ingersoll of Eastern Michigan University. There, through an enormous 900-page course pack, which I still have, but now digitized, I learned first about Joseph Campbell, Carl Jung, the archetypes which produce narratives. Campbell, of course, is almost everybody's pop mythology gateway into deeper thinking. All stories are one story, follow your bliss, enter the cave you most fear, make the hero's journey. Even George Lucas was turned on by it when writing Star Wars, and anymore, most writers. And amidst all those notes, Professor Ingersoll dropped just a few pages, a single chart actually, of Carol Pearson's hero archetypes, adapted from her 1986 work, The Hero Within. That chart was convenient for me, then. I could characterize all my favorite literary heroes with it quite easily. Snow White is The Innocent, Oedipus is The Orphan, Odysseus is The Wanderer, Gilgamesh is The Warrior, Abraham is the martyr, and Merlin, of course, the magician. These six archetypes, more kind of a Venn diagram of character types, really, seemed to me then as oversimplified, but surprising in how accurately they fell into nearly every narrative I could identify. And that semester, I wrote my term paper on Dune's Paul Atreides. I thought it was brilliant. What I did not consider... Not even when Professor Ingersoll, who definitely never struck me as feminist in any way, after all, feminism then was mostly second-wave equality work, characterized in my mind by Billie Jean King of the 1970s. Wow, was I ignorant. But come on, people, this was before the Internet. What I did not consider was how any of these archetypes played out for women's roles in literature. I mean, not really. The lit I read was mostly by men and about men. We spent more time with Lord Raglan than with Carol Pearson, and my college days didn't really talk about female archetypes except as objects of male protagonists. And there were four. The Innocent, the Seductress, the Mother, and the Crone. All women in literature, from what I had come to understand through my early years, had been placed in one of these roles by a sexist literary heritage. Basically, they were a combination resulting from a few binary oppositions. Women were either young or old, sexy or innocent, good or evil, beautiful and ugly. Young and innocent women were always morally good. Old, ugly women were always evil witches, and heck, name any dozen Disney movies and you see exactly this. It was a short jump to see, too, that the young and innocent beauties were the marriageable ones, the princesses, who stayed mostly silent. Sleeping Beauty, Sleeping Snow White, Silent Cindy, and the Muted Mermaid, and the Masquerading Mulan. They were destined, ultimately, for quiet domesticity. That was sexist, too, but what were we to expect from an active male authorship? Women were the backgrounds for active heroes, and this was, for the privileged active male reader I was, a kind of incurious status quo that would, you know, somehow work itself out. What I had not understood then, 
was how Carol Pearson's archetypal categories, which dated back in their earliest versions to the mid-1970s, had another larger agenda attached to them. Hers was, and still is, an effort to work itself out. In 1975, Pearson modestly forwarded an early version of her archetypes and boldly wrote in those early days of feminist criticism, quote, The recognition of the female hero should end the tendency to analyze heroes in intrinsically male terms. Failure to explore the nature of sex roles has frequently been the cause of incorrect distinctions and conceptions and has thus contributed to a distorted view of literary theory and criticism. Well, what she proposed was that we simply distinguish heroes from heroines. Not that one is male and one female, but that a hero, male or female, can adopt all of the archetypal roles the previous scholars have already suggested. And that heroines, as supporting characters, generally fit the archetypes we've identified with female characters. So rather than denying historical archetypes, she demonstrated the variety and versatility of the heroine role, previously understood only as the four I suggested, and she elevated women to also belong to the hero roles of action. While some reflection on this idea might reveal its problematic nature, you see, women can be just as active as men, and helpers can do so in a variety of ways. While that's problematic, she did accomplish a great deal here, something which has become a life work for her and others. First, she addressed an issue that we still wrestle with in films and novels. Is there something called a strong female, which isn't merely a sexy young woman who kicks ass? Second, she made a strong move to literarily and psychologically affirm a woman's sense of agency, of her ability to act independently for her own goals. Today, Pearson calls this understanding archetypal narrative intelligence. That is, each of us are better served if we better comprehend how we author the stories of our own lives through the psychological archetypes inherent in our cultural history and thinking. In other words, we can act when we understand the roles that we cast for ourselves if we think of our lives as a kind of narrative metaphor. Campbell wished for the same when he, and Carl Jung before him, claimed that stories offer us roadmaps for our lives. For Pearson, it's not that the stories of our histories are necessarily wrong-minded, but that our reading of them may well be. If we read stories of males and females in traditional archetypal roles, we will experience a particular set of themes that might certainly limit our understanding of the characters of women women who are forced into multiple role plays. To be attractive, but also innocent. Nurturing, but also somehow competent and decisive. The versatility of the helper figure of women for Pearson was the response to male expectation, but also demonstrated that versatility, that adaptability, that savvy competence of a woman surviving in difficult spaces. Who, after all, is Persephone? but a woman who learns to live two very different lives. The myth, told by a collection of male writers across the ages, may well have effectively masked the potential of its primary character. The myth, read in the dull and stagnant traditions of male-trained readers, 
has done the same. This is not to remove the events of women victimized by male characters or of real women victimized by real men, but to elevate women to potentials beyond the choices afforded them by male narrative readings. The four archetypes I knew, then six by the time of my college course, has since evolved into a still broader understanding by Pearson's work. No matter your gender or age, Pearson now speaks of 12 heroic archetypes that all people might work to better understand within their own psyches. Realize that we all play multiple roles or purposes, and that identifying these may help us enact them. For instance, is Gretel of Hansel and fame an orphan from parents who abandon her? A wanderer for the woods' journey? Or is she a warrior when she kills the witch? The answer is yes. Is Cinderella an innocent before the death of her mother? An orphan in the new household? Or is she a martyr for her domestic sacrifices? Yes. We live several psychological archetypes at once and in different spaces. It is both an act of stubborn simplification and perhaps even captivity to live only a single story. True, none of these roles sound particularly heroic or glamorous, especially for women, until we recognize that the name of the archetype is the merest opening into the psychological dimensions of that character. If we remember, for instance, that the role of the martyr is not only to sacrifice for others, but to represent a spiritual suffering which pleases God, this opens the space up a bit. That poverty is a virtue over riches. That repression of self is a real consequence of a character who fears appearing selfish, that needs to discover a balance between giving and other means of fulfillment. What of the wanderer, the Snow White, who's forced to flee the metaphorical dragon and discover autonomy on her own, to learn what it means to distrust and trust based upon her own judgments? True, she ultimately fails to achieve these goals. But the story transforms a bit when thought about from this approach, yes? What good choices and mistakes did she make, regardless of dwarves and princes? Now remember, Pearson offers us a dozen different archetypal patterns today, each with various components and qualities which can open to us. Here they are, and I've dropped a list in the show notes as well, along with links to Pearson's current websites with more information. So the original six, again, were the innocent, the orphan, the martyr, the warrior, the wanderer, and the magician. Now here's the new twelve. The innocent becomes more neutrally the idealist. The orphan becomes a realist. The martyr is now called caregiver. The wanderer is now a seeker. The warrior remains a warrior. The magician remains a magician. And now we add six more. The lover, the revolutionary, the creator, the ruler, the sage, and the jester. Now consider these in terms of some of the females we've already encountered. We saw a lot of this overlapping archetype with Louise Millard from Kate Chopin's story, The Story of an Hour. Is she merely a woman captured to domesticity by her husband? If we better understand her, for instance, as a seeker and creator, 
The house and her illness is a displacement of her heart, which needs to be elsewhere to discover and form new relationships. The story here is still tragedy, but perhaps not one quite so simply foolish and obscenely encaged. And what of the narrator in Tomorrow is Too Far by Adichie? Merely destined to become the obedient helper of her future husband? Or is she a realist? A revolutionary? She's a young woman who seeks control over a future where her grandmother thwarts her. She seeks change at nearly any cost, and while her impulsive decision was costly, the tragedy may be less about regret over the death of her brother and more about her own inability to reconcile it as anything more than regret. And so, a critical point for Pearson is that the meanings of literature emerge from our better understandings of ourselves as seekers of meaning, as readers. For Pearson, understanding the narrative archetypes enables our own transformation, our own change. Now, we're about to examine a poem by Andrew Marvel, where the woman addressed is absolutely silent, absent from the poem. As that woman, what might we learn about ourselves and our choices from better understanding the archetypes before us? Pearson, originally in 1975, identified Marvel's woman as the heroine, the waiting woman fairly an empty vessel in a standby mode until she's sexually activated. Hmm. I'm suspicious that this is a bit limiting. But we'll see. You see, in my view, Marvel's To His Coy Mistress has two characters, each fully worthy of examination, along with a third, its author. Now, it shouldn't surprise any of us that Pearson is in the business of making some money on her work as well. She has several books for sale on her website and, for those so inclined, an online test of which archetypes best fit your own psychology to give you a kind of blueprint of how to think about your life purposes and strategies. Think of it as a kind of literary Myers-Briggs test, Uh, but it also costs a bit. So I'm going to help you out. I'm going to try this out. I'm going to do the test for myself, offer you a quick review along the way. You can decide afterwards for yourself if it's worth the bucks. So here's an excerpt of me taking this Pearson archetype test. Okay, this thing is called the PMAI report. What does that stand for? The Pearson Mar Archetype Indicator. That's right. So let's click on this and take the assessment. We paid for the full run, the $55 extended report. So let's see what it gives me. Before I take the assessment, complete research questions, which will allow them to improve the instrument. Okay, so the demographic questions. I'm talking about my degrees, my field of work. Level of stress, that's interesting. The level of stress is a question. Age, those sorts of things. Now, please read carefully. If you make a mistake on this assessment, you will not be able to go back and correct it. So I only get one shot at this. 
Each theme is named for its central character or archetype, and that character's way of interpreting events and acting in the world. The twelve archetypes are equally valuable, and each bring unique gifts. No archetype is better or worse than another, therefore there are no right, wrong, better, or worse answers. Each item on the assessment is presented on the screen individually with a vertical response scale. Once you select a response to the item, it moves off the screen and you cannot go back. A five-point scale from strongly disagree to strongly agree. Use the entire scale and only indicate neutral preference when necessary. Answer what's true for you in the last few months, especially in times when you've been feeling most yourself, not your whole life or just today. Answer questions that reflect how you've actually been thinking, feeling, and behaving, rather than how you'd like to be, or as someone else would like you to be. Work as quickly as possible. Your first reaction is often the best. Do this in one sitting. The average time to complete it is 15 to 20 minutes. However, if you don't finish in one sitting, you can log back in. Okay, so here we go. There are 72 questions. Things like personal risks to defend my beliefs. Personal growth questions. Whether you're willing to take risks. Mm -hmm. How trustworthy I am. A lot of it has to do with how charitable and giving I am my relationships with others. I find some of these questions that's difficult to disagree or strongly disagree. I don't know if that's me putting up a face or if I'm having a... Or if I just think the question's worded in a a way that makes me not want to disagree. A lot of it has to do with how much I'm in charge of something. Finding more that I disagree in the back half. I don't know if these are in any particular order. They may just be random. Hmm. Yeah, I can't go back. I would have changed one. Oh, well. I should slow down just a little bit. Okay, the assessment's finished. I did 72 questions. This assessment was done in 2002, revised a couple times up to 2020. Mm, That does not surprise me. Here's my report. Ruler, sage, revolutionary. Now, it's nice as I can download this, which I'm just going to do like that. Okay, so the first couple of sections seem to be generic of the report about how we all want to achieve what's possible for us what social neuroscience has established, what our brains desire, the questions of who we are and what we're going to be, what the archetypes are and how they work. And then in part three, we get to my archetype profile. Brief description of each archetype for you to review. Here are the full descriptions over there. Well, that's just the brief description. We'll just keep going. Let's see what we got here. My archetype profile shows me ruler, sage, revolutionary. And it looks like I got full points in those. There's no part of me that isn't one of those. Seeker, creator, warrior are the ones that follow. Realist, magician, caregiver. Jester, idealist, lover. That's interesting. The plot outline that dominates when you live the ruler's story includes accepting responsibility for your own life and actions and then building skills to gradually gain experience and taking charge. Perhaps this even begins with siblings or on the playground, extending into family and workplace. 
When problems arise, the natural response from a ruler is to put in place policies, procedures, and systems to solve the current challenge and avoid another in the future. Underneath the story of the ruler is a fear of things falling apart. So many of the ruler's problems arise from overcompensating with control and dominance. Rulers need to guard against misinterpreting differences of opinion as threats to power or putting so many rules in place that they create no-win situations where nothing can get done. Finding, empowering, and developing others who can be trusted to share responsibility are activities mature rulers employ. And I've got the sage part. The plot that dominates when I live a sage story revolves around the curiosity to figure something out. The sage narrative begins with some fact or event that's enigmatic or unexplained. When problems arise, the sage remains dogged in pursuit of resolving that mystery, becoming scholar and sleuth, undertaking a laborious process of discovering the truth and then sharing it with others. This process is not the province of educators only, but one lived out by detectives, police, journalists, consultants, or anyone trying to get to the root of a mystery. Sages may want to guard against the tendency to be dogmatic and opinionated with disdain for ordinary life and affairs. They want to be accountable only to the truth and they see it can be viewed accountability to others as as a distraction. Underneath the story of the sage is a fear of chaos and of ensuing lack of certainty. Sometimes the sage's high-sounding vocabulary and grasp of arcane facts can be compensation for a deep sense of inadequacy. Nice. My lowest scoring archetype is lover, which is the peacemaker, companion, or romantic. What's interesting about this is it just gives me details about the lover, but it doesn't tell me what to do with it. It just is giving me the same description that I would have gotten for the high ones. And then the mid-range archetypes are here. Oh, I see. Each of these is different. So this is... So really, if this is all there is, and that seems to be the case in the profile, and the downloading of it seems to not be different, really, this tool, it simply has the 12 archetypes. It has shown me details of the three that I scored best at, and the one that I did not. And everything else on every page is just a generic idea of cultivating flexibility and working stories and understanding how archetypes work. None of this, none of it, outside of the highest to lowest uh, scoring, which is basically a very complicated BuzzFeed quiz. None of it is unique to me. None of it's been created any special way. It's kind of unfortunate. So I'm going to read over this some more, but my initial thought is, save your money, folks. As long as you can get descriptions of these archetypes and you can kind of guess where you might fall, you've done everything that this thing might do. I certainly did not get even $25 out of it, let alone how much I spent for the expanded report. So, yeah. Um, Disappointing. Sorry, Carol Pearson. Very disappointing. Okay, so as you can see, I'm not entirely thrilled by it. 
too much of the report, especially the extended report, is simply a repackaging of general materials, not tailored to my particulars at all. And what I'm given is just a quick preference list of the 12 archetypes from top to bottom, also with a general explanation of four of them. That's it. Doubtless, if you search online, you can find all of these yourself, but here's what I'm going to offer right away. I'm going to repackage the chart of Pearson's original set of archetypes matched to various characters of literature as it was created by my former professor, Sheila Ingersoll. That should also give you a sense of how these might be applied to literature. You can find this link in the show notes and on our website, waywardsstudio.com. By the way, if you're a member of our community, free or paid, there is a figurative ton of materials like this already available. Then, if this chart intrigues you, you can set about exploring more on your own. But as it is, for the amount of information I received from my personalized survey, I might better have spent it on any three of her books, or on those by Carl Jung. That's all for now. Next we turn, at last, to Andrew Marvel. And in the meantime, go read something. <laughs>